All right, as you're being seated, if you'll take your Bibles and go to John chapter 13, John chapter 13, one of the great tensions in life is the pull between our desperate need of God, our need of His grace, our need of His love, His mercy, and His forgiveness, and this tension sometimes pulls against our primal desire to be God ourselves, and so there is a resistance that takes place in our walk with God. Now, on the surface, this sounds a little bit ridiculous. Why would anybody resist God? Why would we resist a loving, good, gracious God that has extended to us himself, his son? But there's several reasons why all of us at times resist him. Uh, Number one is control. There's this concern that if I give up all the control of my life to God, then, then, then what, if he, what if he causes me to do something or sends me someplace that I don't want to go? And so we have fear, and we're afraid, all right, Lord, if I give all control to you, then you might call me to be a missionary to the Amazon jungle or something like that. And I'm scared of spiders, much less crocodiles. So I don't really want to give up all control because what would God do if, if I did? We have this control, we have this fear, and then sometimes we resist God because of an anger issue. Now frequently how this rolls is like this. In the past, I made a deal with God. God, if you do this, then I will do this. And then something happened where we feel like God didn't keep up his end of the bargain. And so we get angry or we get hurt. As a pastor, I talk to a lot of people, and as you talk to them spiritually, one of the things that will frequently come up as a theme is I've been hurt by God. I've been hurt by the church. I've, I'm angry at God right now. And sometimes when you talk to people, uh, they will blame the church. They'll say, well, I had a bad experience in this church, or I had a bad experience with this Christian person. But as you dig deeper, frequently the, the real source, the, the real thing that they're angry at is God. At God. And then as you continue drilling down, one of the things that you discover is that when we get angry at God, it frequently evolves out of a heart that has been making deals with God. We, we approach discipleship as a deal maker. Okay, here I am, Lord. Uh, I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sing with the band. I'm going to have uh, presets of Christian music in my car. I'm going to even put a fish medallion on the back. Uh, You know, I'm going to do, I'm going to go to disciple now. I'm going to go to camp. I'm, I'm going to not do these things that Christians aren't supposed to do. And so we kind of build those things in our lives. I'm even, I'm going to give to the offering. I'm going to support the church. I'm going to get involved. And and we, we, we make these deals with God that if I do this, then God's supposed to do this. And then sometimes life doesn't work out exactly the way that we want it to work out. And so then we get angry or we get frustrated. Are you a deal maker or are you a disciple? Well, today's character actually hung out with Jesus. He saw all the miracles. Whenever Jesus fed the 5,000, this guy ate his full. Whenever Jesus walked on the water, 
This guy saw it. He saw Peter nearly drown. He saw Jesus rescue him. Whenever Jesus healed the blind man, this guy was over on the side going, Yay, Jesus, you did a great job. The guy can see. This guy was able to bring his questions directly to Jesus. He was one of the twelve. He had a front row seat for the ministry of Jesus. We call him a disciple, but in reality, he was a deal maker. He followed Jesus for what he could get out of him. And the tragedy is that he was so busy trying to make a deal with God that in the process he missed out on who Jesus really was. John 13 in your Bibles, verse 21. The disciples here are in the upper room. Jesus is instigating the Lord's Supper. The events of the Passion story are about to unfold. And the Bible says, when Jesus had said this, He was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one who Jesus loved, and scholars generally believe that when John says the one who Jesus loved, he's referring to himself. He was trying to use a a humble way of referring to himself, so One of the disciples that Jesus loved was reclining close beside Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was that he was talking about. So he leaned back back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? So here's the scene. They're in the upper room. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. So Peter, never at a loss with words, is over there looking at John going, you know, and Peter's doing the whole hand signal gestures like you guys do when I preach too long, you know, you know, stop. you know, those kind of things. And so John gets the message, so he whispers into Jesus' ear, okay, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replies, and, and the tone here is probably hushed. He says, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread... He gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Now, none of those reclining at the table knew why he told him this. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread... He went out immediately, and it was night. So the same feet that Jesus had just washed were now going out to betray Jesus. Judas was a thief. He was a traitor. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. Whenever we think of Judas, do we think of good thoughts? We normally always say Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas was also a great actor. You see, Judas had a very, very dark soul, but he was capable of convincing those around him that he was genuine and loving. And you'll discover in Christianity that sometimes living amongst the twelve is somebody who looks the part, dresses the part, talks the part, but in reality is not a disciple. He's a deal-maker. Judas never really surrendered his life to Jesus. Instead, he just always had an angle whenever it came to Jesus. 
In Judas's mind, Jesus was the revolutionary king. Jesus was going to be the one who overthrew Rome. Jesus was going to be the one who took control, who had the power. And because Judas was a finance guy, he had angled himself, he had positioned himself into the proper role where he was keeping the ministry's finances in order. He was the accountant of the disciples. And so when Jesus became the revolutionary king, when Jesus came into his earthly kingdom, in Judas's mind, he would be the secretary of the treasury. He would be the Warren Buffett, the Warren Greenspan, the Ben Barnarchy. He would, he would be the man who would control the flow of money. And for deal, or deal makers, when you control the flow of money, then you control the organization. Well, now, Judas's deal-breaker moment had come a few weeks earlier at a party. Jesus and the disciples were in the town of Bethany, and whenever they got there, the townspeople wanted to throw a celebration party because of two miracles that Jesus had performed. Number one, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That gets people's attention whenever you raise somebody from the dead. Number two, there was a man in the town by the name of Simon who had leprosy, and Jesus had healed him of his skin disease. And so they throw a party at Simon the leper's house. And as you imagine the party, the air is filled with the aroma of burgers grilling back on the grill. I mean, the the chariot races are on the TV, and everybody's excited about the Olympic events because, you know, Rome normally dominates, but Palestine has a good chariot team this year, and maybe they'll win the gold, and and, uh, the kids are running around the house on sugar highs. I mean, it's just a great celebration scene. There's music playing in the background, and Mary of Bethany takes this very expensive oil. We talked about it in church a few weeks ago. She takes this nard and she, she opens it and she anoints Jesus on his head and his feet and she wipes the oil with her hair and there's a special moment of worship where Mary is just one-on-one with Jesus worshiping her Lord. And then there's this moment where the records just screech and the party stops Because Judas Iscariot starts laying in to Mary. What are you doing? Why would you take this expensive oil that we could have taken to town, we could have gotten a great deal on this oil, and then we could have given it to the poor? Now John tells us that Judas' real motivation was he kept up with the money. So take the oil to the town, sell it, put the money in the bag, take a little bit out for yourself. That was his true motivation. So there in front of everybody in the town, Jesus and Judas have a confrontation moment. And Jesus says to him, back off. Leave her alone. I don't think that Jesus said it in a real calm voice. You know, the movies always have Jesus talking like this all the time. I don't think he said, Judas, back off and leave her alone. I mean, I think there was some intensity. Leave her alone. Back off. What she is doing is good. She's anointing me for my burial. She gets it. You don't. Leave her alone. Well, in Matthew's account of the story, immediately after this confrontation, Matthew says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priest. Now notice what he says in verse 15. He goes to them and he says, what are you willing to give me? I've been following this Jesus and he didn't give me what I wanted. So now I'm going to go to his enemies and I'm going to ask them, what are you willing to give me? Let's make a deal, guys. Let's negotiate. Let's talk. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And so they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. We tend to look at Judas and turn up our nose and go, I can't believe he would do this. But there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? Have you ever followed Jesus with an angle? What's in it for me? Now, hopefully you catch yourself when you start making deals with God because uh, it's not a good idea for you as a servant to make deals with the Lord of the universe. But for some of us, if we were to really break down our relationship with God, our entire relationship with God is a series of deals. If I do this, then you're supposed to do this. And here's how it plays out. Instead of God being in charge of 100% of our life and ultimately being the Lord of all, we take charge of about 90% of our life. Okay, Lord, I'm going to run my marriage. I'm going to take care of my career. I'm going to raise my kids according to my values. I'm going to manage my schedule. Uh, The money belongs to me. And Lord, I'll take care of all of this stuff. But there's some things in life that are beyond my control. I can't, I realize I'm not God and that there's some things that I can't completely control and so there's about 10% of my life, Lord, that I need you to to be there for me. I I need your help there. We really have, instead of Christianity, we have self-improvement with a twist of Jesus. Now, as soon as God doesn't please you, he becomes a discardable commodity and we tend to flip. Right, God, I was in control of this. I was, I was doing good over here. I was doing well over here. And Lord, I gave you this area that you were supposed to control, but then you didn't do what I thought you were supposed to do. And so now I'm no longer going to be uh, warming up to you and following you. I'm going to flip and we get angry and we start doing anger games with God. I know you never do this in your house, do you? What are you mad about, honey? Nothing. Nothing at all. Come on, talk to me. No, if you don't understand it, I'm not going to explain it to you. Okay? Now, now, what are we doing in that relationship there? We're creating coldness in order to convey that the other person has done something to you that, that you don't like. Well, we sometimes do that with God. Now, we don't do what Judas did and sell God to the terrorist. But what we do is we, we back away. We, okay, Lord. You didn't do what I thought you should do, so I'm going to hold back my giving. Lord, you didn't do what I thought you should do, so I'm not going to go to church as often. I'm not going to lead my family that way. I'm not going to study the Word. I'm not going to be involved in that ministry. I'm just going to back off because, Lord, I'll show you. I'll show you, Lord. 
Now, I said earlier, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And in a weird way, and stick with me on this idea, in a weird way, it's part of the growth process, going through this stage from deal-maker to disciple. You see, when we come to Jesus for salvation, and, and you surrender, and, and you pray the prayer, and, and you give your life to the King, we normally tell you, hey, you're now part of the family. When this life is over, you're going to go to heaven. You belong to Jesus. You have been forgiven of your sins. Uh, you have been cleansed within your soul. The Holy Spirit now walks with you, and, and you are a part of this community. And we normally talk about all the great benefits that comes with being a Christian. When someone starts out their Christian walk, we don't say, hey, are you really sure about this? Because Jesus said, blessed are you when he persecutes you, and they call you all sorts of names, and they insult you because of me. Do you realize what you're signing up for? I mean, this might actually be, be pretty difficult. Are you sure you want to be a Christian? And so what happens is a lot of us begin our relationship with God because it's a great deal. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I admit my sin. I believe in Jesus Christ. I experience forgiveness. Eternity and with God in heaven is in my future. I, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the family. What a great deal. And so we start out our walk with God because we found something that is so amazing that it changes everything, and it's good for us. Now, Peter went through this stage. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about his kingdom, and, and he starts telling the disciples, my kingdom is about more than riches. And Peter's like, wait a second, Lord, hold on, time out, stop. All this, my kingdom is about more than riches. I'm not tracking with you, Jesus, because I sold my fishing business. I left my family behind. I left my hometown behind to follow you. So Jesus, what's in this for us? Most of the disciples had this angle. During the upper room scene, Jesus is pouring out his heart to the disciples. He's washing their feet. He's sharing with them the elements of the Lord's Supper. And the disciples are over arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. No, I'm going to get the corner office. No, I'm going to get the corner office. No, it's mine. No, no, no. They're arguing about things when Jesus is right in front of them. So there Judas is standing in Simon the leper's house and he faced his turning point moment. Is Jesus my Lord or is he just some guy that I'm trying to use? Is my walk with God nothing more than a deal or am I a disciple? Am I a follower of Jesus Christ because of who he is? You see, so often, what we try to do is we try to ride the God train. I'm going to hop aboard the God train because in my way of thinking, the God train is going to get me to the destination that I want to be in in life. And so we hop aboard and we say, okay, Jesus, take the wheel. Not all of it, but most of it, okay? I'm going to hop aboard that train and it's going to get me to the destination, and what we fail to realize is that Jesus is not a vehicle to take you to the destination. Jesus is the destination. 
He is the destination of Christianity. He is the treasure of life. In Him is the delight, the joy, the meaning, the purpose, the direction, the fulfillment, the forgiveness, the grace that we so long for. You see, you don't make deals with Jesus. Jesus is the deal. It's amazing to me how much of life hinges on these turning point moments, these moments in time where you either go forward and mature or you go backwards. I remember whenever Stacy and I were dating, I started feeling a little bit funny and I started getting a little bit nervous and anxious. And what I didn't realize at the time was I was falling in love. And so I started getting a little bit scared of the relationship. I still remember the phone call. I was talking to her and, <clears throat> and there was this moment where either I was going to move forward in the relationship or I was going to run. You say, well, what did you do, Lash? We're married for 16 years. I, I went forward in the relationship. You guys are tracking well, good, okay? Those turning point moments, I mean, that was a critical moment. Which way are we going to go? You see those turning point moments all through Scripture. What if Adam and Eve hadn't taken that first bite? It was a turning point moment. What if Abraham... When God said, go to a land that I will show you, would have said to God, no, I'm good here, my lazy boy. I'm kicked back. I'm in the land of Ur. Everybody knows me. I'm good right here. What if Moses, whenever God parted the Red Sea and said, walk across, Moses would have go, no, look at those waters. I'm scared of drowning. I'm not going to take that step. What if David, whenever he was staring at a, the big giant Goliath in the eye, or at least in the belly button, had taken those stones and gone round and round and round and round and go, oops, I missed. What if Esther had said, you know what, I really enjoy being the queen and trying to look pretty. I don't need to go into the king and fight for my people. All through Scripture, you see these turning point moments where people either went forward in their faith or they retreated. So much of life comes down to these moments in time, and frequently you don't even realize when they're coming. They, they just kind of come out of nowhere where you, you're in this moment in time where you're going to have to make a decision. Do I go forward or do I go backwards? I remember in my life, whenever I was 14 years old, I had a turning point in my Christian walk. I, I grew up a pastor's kid. My dad's still a pastor today. I started going to church whenever I was negative nine months of age. Uh, the first time I wrote my name was in macaroni back in the preschool class, you know. I mean, I grew up in church. What did Leighton called those kids last night, church brats? <laughs> you know, that was me, okay? I, I grew up in the church. I became a Christian at the age of six. Uh, do not try to talk me out of my testimony. I was saved at the age of six. I didn't understand all the theology, but I did understand that I needed to believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I became a Christian early, I grew up in church, I was taught Christianity, but there was a moment at the age of 14, right about the age that some of you all are, there was this moment where either I was going to follow Christ as a disciple, or I was going to turn to my own way. I was either going to grow in Christ or retreat from Him, and I never will forget it, it was in July uh, at camp, and I had a turning point moment that changed the trajectory of my life. Judas faced his moment in time, 
And for Judas, the issue was, am I following Jesus because of the good deal? Or am I following him because he's Lord? Now, here's what I want you to understand this morning. There will be a turning point moment or moments in each of our lives. It might be the day that you graduate. It might be whenever your loved one dies. It might be whenever the news comes down that you're being laid off. When the doctor comes into the room and says, here's the diagnosis. It might be when that relationship ends or when those cars collide. Frequently, the turning point moment comes out of nowhere. It might be today. But in all of our lives, there are these moments in time when we are faced with questions and how we respond to that question is going to determine, do I move forward or do I go back? Here's a question for you. Do you follow Jesus because he's a good deal? Or do you follow him because he's Lord? Whenever you make that decision, you know what? I follow Jesus because he is my Lord through the high points and the low points of life. I follow Jesus. And you step into the light. That's when you begin to grow. But for many, whenever faced with that decision, they retreat to the shadows And they begin to wither. You see, you either grow and you begin discovering what life's true treasures really are and where they're found. Or you do something like sell your life for 30 pieces of silver. Listen to this passage in in Matthew 13 and verse 44. I think we have it for the screen. This This has been a real pivotal passage in my life. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So Jesus is talking about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, what it means to be a true follower. And and he says this guy is going through this field and he comes across a treasure. And this treasure is so amazing. I mean, it's better than a washer machine. It's better than diamond earrings. I mean, this treasure is so amazing that he takes it, he kind of puts it back in in, in the ground, and he goes and he sells everything he has because he needs to go buy the field so that he can have the treasure. And the, the gist of what Jesus is getting here, getting at here, is that knowing God and knowing Christ It is the great pearl of life. It is the great treasure of life that whenever we find Jesus and all that he brings to our life and all that he is, then everything else in life uh, is rubbish compared to knowing him and making him great. You see, there's a huge difference between a deal maker and a disciple. A dealmaker follows Jesus for what we can get out of him. And so as long as Jesus is meeting your expectations, you love him, you sing to him, you support his work, you're all in. But then the moment he disappoints, you grow cold, you push him away, he's disdained and discarded. A disciple, though, is the one that whenever he finds Jesus, 
realizes that he has found the treasure in the field that is worth more by itself than everything else life has to offer. And so the disciple goes all in. He says, Lord, here's my family. Here's my career. Here's my marriage. Here's my finances. Lord, here is my time. Here is my ambition. Lord, I go all in because more than anything else in this life, I want to know you and to live for you and to make you known. For the deal maker, their life is an endless pursuit of the bargain. For you, hope and meaning and faith are in reality synonyms for selfishness. And blinded by pride, the pearl of grace often goes unseen. You see, whenever you're making deals, you're so busy worrying about yourself that you don't realize that the pearl of grace, the great treasure, it's not going to be found within you. The great treasure is found when you quit looking at yourself and you look at the cross. Whenever you survey the wondrous cross, that's whenever you are able to move beyond your right of pride and see God for who He really is. A disciple realizes that the pearl of grace, that's where hope and meaning are found. Whenever I experience the joy and the forgiveness and the grace of God, I have found myself swimming in the delights of life and the desire of my heart becomes to make much of Him in every area of my life. In my marriage, in my parenting, in my life, in my career, in my neighborhood, I want to make much of Christ because He is the deal. He is the treasure. A deal maker who is one who is fully devoted in every area of life to one thing, yourself. A disciple, though, is one who is fully devoted in every area of life to following Jesus, being like him. The tragedy of Judas's life is that he lived and died as a pretender. Life for him was an endless pursuit of the best deal. And in the end, he couldn't even see that the treasure was sitting right in front of him. And instead... He sold the treasure for 30 pieces of silver. He was a deal maker when Jesus called him to be a disciple. And so I end this morning with the question, are you a deal maker or are you a disciple? Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of worship? The band's going to come, and I encourage you to sing, sing out the, the songs of praise with your, your very soul. Music is the language of the soul. Let's, let's sing forth to God today. Some during this time, uh, it may need to be a turning point in your life. You need to take that next step in what it means to be a follower of Christ Move beyond simply the benefit packages of the cross and embrace the Savior. Embrace Jesus as your Lord. For some of us here, we've, we've been riding the God train thinking that it'll take us to our preferred destination. And today needs to be the day where we come to that realization that Jesus is our destination. 
You know, in life, there really has to be that one thing. That one thing that is your God, that one thing that you live for, that becomes central to all. It's Jesus. Let Him be your Lord. Surrender totally to Him. Let Him be the one that transforms your marriage. Let Him be the one that gives you the strength to love others and to love one another. Let Him be the one that guides you as to how you can love your neighbors that are living around you. Let Him be the one that opens those doors for ministry. Jesus is Lord. And He desires for you to be His disciple. Father, help us. Help us to be like Christ. Lord, help, help us not to get confused and to think that all these things that we do are the joy of life. But help us to abide in you, to know you, Help us to have relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that we won't miss it. Lord, may we never sit at your table, see you do great and mighty things, and miss out on the treasure of life that is right in front of us because we're willing to settle for 30 pieces of silver. Thank you, Lord, for these students what you've done in their life this weekend. I pray, Father, that you might raise up a generation that is passionate about being like Christ. I pray, Father, that you will be the father to the fatherless, that you will lead these students, lead their generation to bring about change that begins in the human heart and draws our soul to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we worship because He is our Lord. Amen.